Oh, hello again uh, to my friends in Mafra. Good to be back with you. I wish I was there in person, but uh, that's not possible at the moment. In this, the uh, the time of our muzzling, um, we uh, we trust that one day it'll be possible for us to uh, to gather together again. But in the meantime, um, we're told in the New Testament that God's word is not bound, so uh, we'll keep preaching it and and keep believing it and. Um, We'll just trust God as as we should be. So let's pray and then we'll come to God's word. Heavenly Father, again, we come to you and we need your help. We need your help to understand your word and we need your spirit's assistance to apply it in our lives. Help us to be today uh, like those who, who tremble at your word. Um, and uh, so we ask that you would reveal more of yourself, more of your son to us today, and that you would grant that having... Uh, received your word that we would walk in in the light of it we pray these things in jesus name amen well you know if you sat down you could read the book of isaiah in an afternoon it'll be a fairly long afternoon uh, isaiah is 66 chapters long it's not the longest book in the old testament the book of psalms has 150 psalms the book of jeremiah has more words but isaiah at 66 chapters is a formidable book it's a big book uh, you could sit down and read it in a sitting if you wanted to and if you did that, you might think, well, there's a fair bit of repetition in it. And you might be thinking that as you listen to these sermons that we're preaching. You might think, oh, we've heard this before. Well, you know, things that you've heard before, you probably need to hear again. Uh, I remember um, reading about uh, Michael Clark, who used to be the Australian cricket captain. And uh, before he was the captain, he, uh, he was just one of the star players on the team and he was on a tour of New Zealand and he had a, a bit of a personal crisis in as much as his fiancée let him down fairly badly. So he had to return to Australia to concentrate on his relationship. Uh, that didn't, it wasn't necessarily very well received by certain members of the cricket establishment, uh, but he came back to Australia to sort out the personal matter and then he went back to New Zealand and he walked straight into the test team. And so the big question was, how would he go? Uh, and he did rather well. He made a century. Uh, and so I, I read an interview with him afterwards, and they, they asked him to describe what it was like virtually coming off the plane, having been away from the team for a week, and he comes out and he makes a century. And he said, well, the first 50 were pretty scratchy. He said, um, I realised I hadn't had a hit for a while. Now, isn't that extraordinary? Uh, this champion cricketer thought that his first 50 was pretty scratchy because he hadn't had a bat for a week. You see, players as finely tuned as him, players at that level of elite sporting accomplishment, they notice the difference that it makes if they go a day without a hit in the nets. Uh, Christians too need to submit themselves to a certain amount of repetition. We can ne never hear the gospel enough. We can never have those reminders to our sinful hearts that we actually need a saviour. Uh, we can't do this on our own. And so Isaiah, the prophet, prophesied over a period of about 40 years. You can see that in chapter 1, that his, uh, his prophetic career encompassed the reigns of four kings who were named in chapter 1. And so across the course of that time, he's speaking to people that don't want to hear. And so of course he's going to be saying the same thing quite a lot. And just as God's people in those days so long ago needed to hear the same thing over and over again. Of course, there's lots of variation and Isaiah's message grows and, and, and develops as his time goes by. But you will hear echoes of similar things because we keep needing to hear those words. We're just as idolatrous as they were. We're just as prone to, to doing things our way and trying to reject God's word as they were. So we too need to, to hear God's word. And if God sees fit to repeat himself, 
in his word, then who are we to disagree? But we come to Isaiah chapter 30, and this is a part of a section in the book that's dealing with the very real threat that is posed to, to Jerusalem and Judah by the massive Assyrian uh, civilization. I went and saw a film uh, a couple of years ago with my dad. You perhaps might have seen it too. It's about Dunkirk, that time in, in the Second World War where the, the English expeditionary force had been forced back from France and they were now on the beach of, of, of Dunkirk and the, the, their chances looked very slim because they were being bombarded by the, uh, the, uh, the, the German Air Force. And so an enormous flotilla of, of boats was, was sent across the channel to rescue these people. And I remember sitting there watching it with my dad and my mum grew up in London while the Second World War was on and it occurred to me I'd never really asked her what it felt like to be living in a country that was at the very real risk of invasion. What must it have felt like when the Daily News carried all these stories of Hitler sweeping through Europe uh, and no one could withstand him? What must it have felt like for a girl growing up in London? I never asked mum. Well, that's the situation that faces Jerusalem. That's the situation that Isaiah is confronting. Assyria is on the march. They've, uh, they, they've conquered every known opposition. And, uh, and, and, and Jerusalem is faced with the prospect that Assyria might soon be coming for them. How will they react? Well, we find out some of their thinking in chapter 30. And so it begins, chapter 30, verse 1. I hope you've read the whole of, of this chapter. It would really be very useful. Um, but chapter 30, verse 1 Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Ah, says Yahweh. Now that's a word that's repeated at a number of points, chapter 28, verse 1, chapter 29, verse 1, chapter 29, verse 15, and then later on in chapter 33. It's, a, it's an exclamation of alarm or of great grief. So in other words, the words that follow this aren't going to be good news. These stubborn children, remember we back in chapter 1 we saw that they were rebellious children really sticking their, their middle finger up at Yahweh. Uh, they've decided to rebel. They're going to add sin to sin. What are they going to do? Well, they're going to make a foreign military alliance. It looks as though they've set their heart on returning to Egypt. The Assyrian threat is deemed to be so significant. I mean, Assyria was a nation that was known to impale its victims. If, if they took a disliking to you, they might shove you on a pole or... They weren't beyond skinning people alive. I mean, it would have been a terrible thing to contemplate being overtaken by the Assyrians. So they did what must have seemed the logical thing to do. They think we need, need to get the Egyptians on our side again. They were being pragmatic. They were taking the law into their own hands. But Yahweh says to them, no, that's not my plan. You haven't sought me. You're not doing this by my spirit. But we see in verse 4 that the officials from Jerusalem are already down there. They're already part of the, They're already down there doing their negotiation. Their officials are at Zoan and, and Haines. Uh, imagine the press conference back in Jerusalem. Um, King Hezekiah might be saying, well, in response to the growing Assyrian crisis, we've already got high-level officials down there for, for high-level government talks. But they never ask God if that's what they should be doing. Because, you see, to go back to Egypt represents a terrible turnaround for God's people. It means they're returning to their land of slavery. It means they're returning to the country that wanted to kill them as a, as a nation back in Exodus chapter 1. And so the results are forecast ahead of time. It's going to result in shame and disgrace in verse 5. Uh, 
they were told in Deuteronomy that they shouldn't return to Egypt, that they shouldn't be going back. It's the way they should never return again, according to Deuteronomy 17, verse 16. So to do this means that they're directly flouting God's law. So in verse 6, we read that there's an oracle on the beasts of the Negev. Now, the Negev was a desert that was between Israel and, uh, and Egypt. And really, Isaiah here is, is expressing sympathy for the animals because the animals are carrying all this stuff. They're carrying treasures. So in other words, they're sending loot down to Egypt to try to bribe them into helping them. But it's a pointless journey. It's a journey that inverts the exodus. It's the reverse of the exodus. They're going back through the desert to, to seek the assistance of the people that were once their sworn enemies. Now, in verse 7, we, we read about Rahab who sits still. Rahab's a nickname for Egypt. You can see that at various points. Psalm 87 uses it. Uh, Rahab is a word that means turbulence or, or boastfulness. And so Alec Matia in his commentary says that perhaps we could translate this as uh, Rahab, big mouth, do nothing. So do you think Yahweh's impressed? by the fact that his people, troubled as they are, want to go back to Egypt, the, the, the country of big mouth do nothing? Of course not. So verses 8 to 17 speak of this rebellious people. Uh, and the nature of their rebellion is that they're refusing Yahweh's word. And so in verse 8, uh, Isaiah is instructed. Yahweh says to him, Now go, write it before them on a tablet, inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. So he's to make a public record, that's the tablet, and he's to make a private record, perhaps for his own keeping, that's the book or the scroll. He's to write it down. And effectively what he's saying to them is, you've been warned. I did tell you. When it comes upon you, you won't be able to say, well, heck, we didn't see this coming. They were told in advance that this mission to Egypt was fruitless. It would end in their shame and disgrace. And so these perverse children... These unwilling children give expression to their rebellion against the God who saved them, who's brought them into the land, the promised land. These are children who are unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, according to verse 9. We go on into verse 10. They say to the seers, that's another word for a prophet, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions. Leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Now, there's the heart of the problem. Uh, last week, you heard Ray speak to you on uh, chapter 29, and he drew attention to chapter 29, verse 13, uh, words that were quoted by Jesus because they still applied to the people of the Jerusalem of his day. This people draw near to me with their mouth and honour me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. You see, the thing is, the people in Jerusalem at the time that Isaiah was prophesying, just like when Jesus was around, they were good at religion. They were good at the outward display of, of looking righteous, looking religious for other people, but their hearts weren't in it. Weren't in it. They got religion down to this code, this sort of set of rules and practices that they did, but they were still going on with their idols as well. Because they looked at God's word and they turned away from it. They'd got as much of it as they wanted and, and that's all they put into practice. But what they wanted was an easy religion. They wanted easy fixes. They wanted a smooth religion. Now, Ray mentioned last week he and I have been working on 
what we're calling dark devotions. We've each of us worked out to our own satisfaction that a lot of the devotional literature that Christians seem to prefer is of the pleasant kind. You know, um, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, and um, lots of lovely things that usually have flowers on the cover or somewhere you can colour in. But so much of the Bible is written to confront our dark heart. So much of the Bible is written to confront our inherent tendency to want things that are not what God wants for us. And so we've written a few devotionals to, to counter that, to at least give people a taste of, of other parts of the Bible that we think probably aren't going to be covered in that kind of reading. And here's one of the verses that I think I might write something on um, one day. These people who say to the prophets, don't prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions. They don't want to hear about the Holy One of Israel because they're pretty keen on turning aside from the path that he's prescribed for them. Now, there's a verse that I have written a dark devo on in Micah 2. Now, Micah was a prophet who was operating at the same time as Isaiah, pretty much, and, uh, and he said of these same people, if a man, in Micah 2 verse 11, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies and saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. So they want smooth things, says Isaiah. Micah says they just want me to preach about beer and wine. Is that us? Do we want religion that appeals to us? Do we want pleasant, entertaining religion that massages our conscience, that makes us feel better about ourselves? Or do we want the clean, bracing, strong wind of God's word that confronts our evil and shows us how it can be put right, shows us how God wants to work in us to make us fit for his presence? Which do we want? Do we want the, the accurate diagnosis of the heavenly doctor or do we want the spin and the, uh, and the confusion of a world which is on its way to hell? I gave some talks on Isaiah in another church once and I was told after a few of them that I was talking too much about judgment. Well, that's kind of what you get when you work through a book systematically. If, if you're going to be obedient in preaching God's word, then you've got to preach all that it's there, all that's there, not just bits of it. You know, cherry-pick the nice bits. Part of the duty of any good preacher is to preach the Bible in the proportion which it's been given. If it's God's word, dare we leave bits of it out? I'd say no. Can we talk too often of judgment? Well, it's possible that you can, but if you talk about it in the proportion in which God does, then you're on safe ground. The Bible always balances discussion of judgment out with, with mercy and grace and God's desire to forgive, as we're going to see in a moment. But you can't have one without the other. And it's not representing Yahweh and his word accurately if we, omit the, if we omit the fact that he's jealous for his holy name and he will do what it takes to purge this world of the evil that, uh, that opposes him. And so in verse 12 we read that these people are guilty of despising his word. Despising his word means turning away from it, means putting it behind their back, ignoring it, pretending that it says something else. One of the, uh, the earliest Christian heretics was a man called Marcion. Uh, Marcion decided that the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, was uh, the work of an angry, cruel and vengeful God. And so he just scrapped it. And he said most of the New Testament was pretty ugly too. He really only liked uh, the works of Paul. 
Um, so he said Luke was all right because he was a friend of, of Paul's. And so the Marcion Bible uh, contained the writings of Luke and some of the letters of Paul. And that was it. Uh, the rest of it, he said, was, was beneath the, the, the good God that Jesus came to represent. Now, we might look at a man like Marcion and say, well, that's a terrible thing to do, cutting the word of God out. But in fact, many of us are functional Marcionites because we do the same ourselves by the bits we just simply don't read. Verse 12 says that these people were guilty of despising the word of the Holy One of Israel. And because of that, they were trusting in oppression and perverseness. And as a result, they were ripe for his judgment. And so verse 13, their, their plan that they've never sought God's help about, they haven't prayed about it, they haven't sought the, uh, the, the, his spirit's guidance, it's going to bring about their undoing and their overthrow. And it's going to come suddenly like a wall that just all of a sudden collapses. And so there's a terrible irony here in verse 14. Uh, it's breaking, the, that's the breaking down of the wall. It's like that of a potter's vessel is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with, with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. You remember last week, 29, chapter 29, verse 16, uses the idea of a pot talking back to the potter, saying, why'd you make me like this? It, it's a crazy idea. It's an idea that just simply can't be countenanced. Can you imagine, as Ray asked last week, a coffee cup talking back to the potter saying, no, don't make, make me into an ashtray. Um, can you imagine that? Well, it's stupid, of course. But here we find the coffee cup just smashed to smithereens. And that's what happens to people that resist God's word. That's what happens to, to pots that talk back to the potter. Well, in verse 15, we're introduced to a better way. Thus says, for thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. That's the better way. Not returning to Egypt, not going back by the way that they should never have taken again, but turning, re repenting and turning to walk in Yahweh's way, in the way of God, the God that saved them, the God, them, the God that gave them good laws to live by in returning and rest. They could go back to Rahab, the turbulent one, the boastful do-nothing, or they could return to Yahweh and find rest and salvation. And in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Quietness and trust speaks of that condition of life which is settled and content, a life that's not troubled by all the, uh, the winds and waves of, of our present world. It's really another way of saying trust and obey, which is what the Christian life is about. It's about trusting God. That's what faith is, and obeying God, doing what he says. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. While we despise the word of God, while we put it behind us, while we're selective in the bits that we obey, while we prefer our idols, we'll never find the rest that our souls really desire. But look how verse 15 ends. But you were unwilling and you said, no, we will flee upon horses. They're intent on going back to Egypt. And so it's as though Yahweh says, all right, then have it your way. So Yahweh is sovereign, but in some mysterious way, he, he allows us to do as we really want. And so verse 17 speaks of an ironic reversal. In Leviticus chapter 26, we read that if... 
God's people walk in his statutes and observe his commandments and do them, well, apart from the fact that he's going to give them their rains in season and give them a wonderful um, land in which to live, he says he's going to make their enemies afraid of them. And in verse 8, verse 7, he says that you'll chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. Verse 8, he says, five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall chase 10,000 and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. But now these rebellious people, they're going to find if they're intent on going their own way, that, that situation's inverted. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. It's not going to go well for them if they continue to resist God's word, if they continue to despise it. But God wants better thing for them. Verse 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Right in the heart of our passage is, is the key point of it. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious. Yahweh wants to be gracious as he's promised. He says that there are tremendous blessings for obeying his word. Yes, there's stern judgment. Um, Back in chapter 28, we read that God's work of judgment is, is his strange and alien work. You see, the thing is God will judge, and it's perfectly consistent with his character as the king of all the universe, but he would rather forgive. And so in Ezekiel chapter 18, it sums it up quite beautifully. Ezekiel 18, verse 23, Yahweh asks, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? So Yahweh's the Lord who waits to be gracious. His people are champing at the bit to disobey him. They're, they're fleeing on horses fast. Get us down to Egypt, they say. But Yahweh is waiting. He's the God who waits. He's the God who waits and waits to bless. And so a little later we're going to see in chapter 40 that, that God will bless those who wait for him. So chapter 40, verse 31, a famous verse, those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. So the God who waits to save says he will bless those who wait for him. Isaiah prophesied for 40 years to a, a stubborn, resistant people, people who were deaf and blind, people who his message made deafer and blinder because they were so resistant to it. But there were some who listened, some who turned, some who had to suffer the fires of God's judgment because of the hard-heartedness of those that they lived amongst. Perhaps they asked how long. It's the sort of question that we could be asking at the moment in our present circumstances. How long is this going to go on for? What's God doing? Is he not hearing our prayers? Is he going to do anything about it at all? Well, you see, pandemics have been part of human history for a very long time. They're just a part of the fallen world in which we find ourselves. Depressions and wars and, and crime and all these other things that equally cause displeasure to God. They're, they're a feature of living in a fallen world. But the call of the prophets, the call of the gospel, is to wait. 
to trust and obey. I love the phrase in the book of Hebrews in chapter 6, verse 12. It talks about those who are receiving God's promises, those who receive the, the treasures that he has for them, are people of faith and patience, people who trust God and in patience leave the timing of his complete salvation to him. But in the meantime, we wait. And those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. So Yahweh is waiting to be gracious to people that are hell-bent on turning away from him. We need to be people who wait for him while he completes his work in us. But verses 19 and, and following speak of the better days ahead for those who do wait and trust and obey. Yahweh is not finished. He's faithful. Uh, the troubles will continue. Uh, we live in a world that's, that's plagued with trouble and that will continue until the Lord Jesus returns. It's only then that every tear will be wiped from the eyes. So they'll be weeping until Jesus returns. But we get a wonderful vision of the, of, of the resources that God makes available to us even in the present in verse 21. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Now, turning to the right and turning to the left, that's a figure of speech for leaving the path, for, for transgressing, for sinning, for going away from the way that God wants. Yahweh recalls us to walk on, on the path, but the call comes from behind. And so this is a sign of how Yahweh is going to graciously guide his people in the future by his Holy Spirit the voice that will speak to us and say, no, don't walk there, don't go to the right, don't go to the left. When we're following the direction that God wants us to go in, that's the way we should be going. But this voice is going to recall us, and this is the gift of the Holy Spirit that Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesy as well. They speak of it in terms of God giving us a new heart, which is going to put an end to the idolatry, which is Israel's besetting sin and ours too, if we're honest about it. So a day's going to come when God gives people new hearts and gives them a spirit, his Holy Spirit, that will guide them in the right path and keep them from transgressing. Verse 26, verses 23 to 26, a contrast. Um, and they're speaking of the wonders of a new creation that's coming. They speak of it in terms of things that we can understand, like the light of the moon and the light of the sun, but they're speaking of a, of a new creation which is even more glorious than this present one. And these two are the rewards that God holds out for those who, by faith and patience, wait for him to finish the work. And it speaks too of how he's going to heal the wounds that are caused by sin and even the wounds that are caused by his discipline. The Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Verses 27 to, to 28 sum up the Assyrian threat. It's no threat at all. Egypt was no help. Assyria is no threat. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with anger. The Assyrians, strong as they are, are no threat to the God who saved his people and the God who will keep his people if they patiently wait for him. And so Yahweh will judge. Verse 28, his breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. Yahweh is a devouring fire. He will judge. He'd rather forgive. But those who resist him and persist in it, 
he'll judge. And so verses 29 to 33, speaking contrasting destinies, you shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of the flute. So for those who turn to Yahweh and find in him their rest and their peace, they'll be rewarded with a song, with rejoicing. But for those who continue to despise his word, to look elsewhere for help or to pitch in their lot with those who oppose him, there's sulphur. Verse 33, for a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready. Its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord like a stream of sulphur kindles it. So there's these contrasting destinies, singing or sulphur. And those destinies will be determined by our response to Yahweh's word. Will we heed his word and turn to him or we will reject his word and go our own way? And so the idea, of course, is to accept his word. Don't despise it. Don't prefer smooth things. Take the bracing truth of God's word, the the word that identifies the true nature of our heart and proposes the, di- the, the solution to it, which is his grace, because he waits to be gracious. You see, God's not only given us his written word, he's giving us his living word, the Lord Jesus. And those who come to the Lord Jesus will find that they won't be disappointed. Those who put their hope and their trust in him, those who ask the Lord Jesus to forgive them, will find that they'll never be disappointed. They will find their rest and their peace now, but they'll find eternal rest and peace as well. Rest that won't be given to the wicked, those who continue to resist and rebel. While we wait, God grants us the Spirit as our guide. Now, you might be troubled by the idea of God being a judge. Uh, It's one of those things that lots of people don't like to hear. Those are the sorts of things that Marcy had cut out of his Bible. But there's no way we can avoid it. But Ray spoke last week that for God to establish his rule on earth, he has to eliminate every form of opposition or else the world won't be safe because there'll always be opponents, there'll always be threats. But one day, Yahweh is going to create a reign of perfect righteousness, of perfect peace, of perfect rest. C.S. Lewis, as so often is the case, puts it wonderfully and and memorably in his book, uh, The Great Divorce, He says this, There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says, in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. You see, the thing is, God's given us his word. He waits to be gracious. But if we despise his word, then in the end, he gives us what we choose. If we haven't wanted anything to do with God in time, then it's only fair that we'll do without him in eternity. Those who have loved him, trusted him, obeyed him in time will find that it's their privilege to continue to do that in eternity. And so we need to be amongst those who return to him and find in him rest and peace through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be those who honour him and his word and not oppose him and continue with our resistance and our rebellion. There are these two destinies, only two, one of singing 
and one of sulphur. Which will it be for you? Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who longs to forgive, a God who longs to be merciful. We search our hearts and we know that we are given to rebellion and resistance, that we're given to our idols. And so we ask that you would forgive us and we ask that you would cleanse us. We ask that you would continue to direct our steps to follow in the path of your commands. Uh, we thank you for this promise of your Holy Spirit uh, who, who, who will speak to us about turning to the left or to the right and we pray that you would help us to desire deep in our hearts these changed hearts that you've given us by the Lord Jesus that you would help us to desire the things that truly please you so father please take these words and apply them to our lives and may we live lives of, of joyful singing obedience to you even now as we wait patiently for that day when the Lord Jesus will return and wipe every tear from the eyes and make everything new and grant that, uh, that we will live forever in your presence. Father, I pray that you would grant these things and help us in Jesus' name. Amen.